The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to him out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, Then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. All right, and I'll invite the rest of us to turn to Mark chapter 11. That's Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. Mark chapter 11. Together as we look at Mark 1 through 11. Well, the Bible teaches this about God. It teaches that God is a sovereign God. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10 says, I am God and there is none like me, the end from the beginning and from ancient times to things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. That's what I mean when I use that word sovereign. What does it mean for God to be sovereign? It means everything that God sets out to do, he will do. He is going to accomplish. That's what it means for God to be a sovereign God. Now, I think a lot of times when we talk about sovereignty, we sometimes act as if it's just kind of this quality that every now and then God kind of uses to, you know, just kind of throw out there. But we miss the reality that we talk about sovereignty, we talk about a sovereign, it's actually connected always to a person, to the person and the character of who God is. As we've been walking through the back half of the book of Mark, we're seeing Jesus as this really compassionate, loving person who in his very bowels yearns for people and, and what is good for them, what is right for them. And when he exercises his sovereign control, he, can, he does that in such a way that we can be confident. He does that for our good and always for us. He is always for us and never against us. Because in his very nature and character, he's a good and kind God. So one thing that helps me when I start thinking about sovereignty or those things like this text today is going to have us think through is to not just think of God as having a quality or character trait of sovereignty, but to think of him as a sovereign. A sovereign is just another way to say a king. It is someone who rules, someone who reigns, somebody who exercises authority And their will gets accomplished. Because what we see in this passage, and it's sometimes really weird and uncanny ways, as Jesus goes in in this triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem, he gets his way. He exercises his control over a colt donkey, over people, over crowds, and he is the king, and it's this announcement that he is the sovereign who's come to rule and reign, and it's such good news because he is so good. And when he rules and when he reigns, 
the world works out in the best way possible. And that's what I want us to see today, is we're going to talk about this sovereign King Jesus. As we look at his sovereign control, his, the sovereign's homage, the worship that he is due, and finally, his confidence that he has in all these things as well, as we look at Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. Let's read that together now. Verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately, as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and I will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street. And they untied it. And some of those standing there said to him, What are you doing untying the colt? They told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus, and they threw cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything... As it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So what we see in this passage, again, for what we see first, is the sovereign's control of this situation. It's a little bit, like I said, it's uncanny. Jesus tells two disciples as they're entering into Jerusalem from the uh, Mount uh, Olivet or Mount of Olives, they're coming in, and Jesus says, "Hey, as we get to this little village, this little tiny village of Bethany, I want two of you to go ahead." And you're going to find a colt tie. And it's interesting that he doesn't give the name of the two because it's not about them. It's about what they're getting ready to do. He's like, you're going to go and you're going to find this colt tied in this place. And when you do, just walk up and untie it. And if anybody asks you what you're doing, tell them the Lord has need of it, that it'll be back here immediately, and then they're going to let you go. And we have to realize, I feel really bad for these two disciples. See, we get nervous if we're asked to like, go hang some door hangers from the church. If we were to put this in like our context now, like a, a colt, a donkey is like a tractor, a car, a pickup truck, a minivan, like all loaded into one. Like imagine someone just like walked up to your house and, and somehow they managed to get the keys to one of your vehicles and you just hear, right? You'd walk out and what would you say? What are you doing? What are you doing? And they would just look at you and be, no, 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 God needs it, man. It's cool. And then you'd just be like, okay, you wouldn't do that. That's crazy. You never do that. You shouldn't do that. If someone comes to you this week and starts up your car and they say, God told you, to, like, don't, that, no, they didn't. God did not tell them to do that. Call the police. That person is crazy. Don't let them take your car. This is a weird and kind of uncanny situation. Like, Jesus is literally telling these guys, like, hey, I want you to go, and you're going to find this, like, valuable thing that actually no one has ever ridden on. And you're just going to go and you're start untying it. And when someone asks you, what are you doing? Because, like, that's a normal thing to ask when someone just grabs something that's not theirs, that's really valuable. Like, what are you doing? You're just going to tell them, the Lord has need of it. And don't worry, we'll bring it back. And they're going to say, okay. And that's what happens. They go into this town. It's funny, like, there are some commentators who even, like, kind of try to, like, well, Jesus had kind of been here, so maybe he knew that this was going to... Like, Jesus has predicted, predicted his, his death and resurrection three times in the book of Mark. We should not be surprised that Jesus knows where a farm animal's at. We should not be surprised that Jesus is able to say, yeah, you're going to go and you're going you're to untie this. 
and you're going to do this. And this is, a, this is a cult that's never been sat on. And to just exercise his control, Jesus is then able to ride this colt. Now, for those of us who live in the city of Columbus, we have no idea what that means because we're not around farm animals. But here's the reality of things that get ridden, like animals. Things that have never been ridden before don't like it when you get on their back, okay? They get really mad and they buck you off. They, they have to literally be broken to be ridden. I actually was thinking about showing you guys a YouTube video so that you would see that, but the reality is, is when cowboys jump on, um, you know, donkeys and they buck them off, they say things that isn't really appropriate for church, okay? So like just to give you some context there, like people who are around this all the time can't help but crying out like expletives on the internet when this is happening because you don't just jump on something that's never been written before. Unless you're the sovereign king of the universe and unless if it's the plan that has to happen. That's what God has called them to do. Now, we have to look at this, and again, these are like uncanny kind of details. Like, why is this happening? Why is Jesus riding in on this donkey? Why is he exercising this kind of control for his disciples and the people following? Why is he doing this? And here's something that I want us to think through. What does it mean for your life today as we, we look at this? Is because the reality of the situation is Jesus has now told them three times, I'm going to Jerusalem, and I'm going to die and rise again. See, just around the bend, at the end of this week in their life, now it's going to take us five months to get there, but at the end of this week, what's happening is there's going to come a situation where it's going to look like Jesus has completely lost control. I don't know what the feeling is, but I would imagine if you're sitting there and your leader is being held down on a piece of wood, soldiers standing over him, and they're driving a piece of metal into his arm, do you think he's got this? He's got them right where he wants them. He's in total control. Like at some point in that, you probably think, Jesus has lost control of this situation. This is not going the way it's supposed to go. But when Jesus enters the city, he's having them do these things that they're uncanny. They're just straight. Like why is he doing this? And I think he's showing them because there's never gonna be a moment where I'm not in control. Because the reality is, is that Roman soldier stands over him, holds him down, and drives a nail into his hands. With each clang of that hammer, we should hear ringing out, Sovereign, Sovereign, Sovereign. This is the plan. Nothing's going to get in his way. Nothing's going to stop him. Nothing will thwart him. And we can look at that moment and we think, this is God. This can't be right. And Jesus is saying, this is right. I'm in total and complete control. Beast of burden will submit to me when I want them to. Random people that you don't know will give up valuable possessions because I told them I need it because I'm in control. And when it doesn't look like I'm in control, I am in control. In the book of Acts, Peter understands this. Filled with the Holy Spirit and preaching, he says this in Acts chapter 2, 22 through 24. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus, listen, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. 
you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. What we're going to hit at the end of the week of Jesus' life here is a part of the predetermined plan and according to the foreknowledge of God. When Jesus set his face on Jerusalem, there was nothing that was going to stop him for dying for your sins and mine. And when everything looks like it's totally and completely out of control and unraveling, we need to know the God of this universe is in total control. This is his plan. There's nothing that stops our sovereign king. In Zechariah 9, 9, 500 years before this happened, we are told, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foul, uh, the full, excuse me, not the foul, it'd be a bird, the full of a donkey. We need to know that nothing from donkeys to circumstance in your life is out of the control of God. Your sovereign is always working and he is working for you and not against you, even in Roman soldier over you, driving nails into your hands kind of moments. Because reality is, his life is filled with those kinds of moments. And we need to know that God's in control, that he's got this. He is not fretting and he is not worried. And when his sovereignty is on display, his glory is made known And people respond by paying him his homage or his worship and his adoration. Looking at verses 8 and 9, I want us to see the sovereign's homage. As the sovereign king, not only will nothing stop him from accomplishing his purposes, nothing will stop him from receiving the glory that he is due, the worship that he is due. In verse 8, we read this. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they may have cut off from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of our Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. These people are, are following Jesus. And if we remember from Mark chapter 10, when he left Jericho, his last stop on his way to Jerusalem, it tells us that a great crowd, even Bartimaeus, who we just sang about, who cries out, Son of David, we have mercy on me, would probably be a part of this crowd. And they're following him. So Jesus is not some crazy guy with just 12 people following around. There's these large crowds following him on the road to Jerusalem. But they're probably not the only people walking to Jerusalem at this time. But it's probably a mixed crowd. Because there would also be people, because it's the Passover, making their pilgrimage to Jerusalem in order to worship at the temple. Jews from all over the world would have been gathering and coming into the city. And as they're walking these roads into the city, maybe if it's even started off by Jesus' followers, it seems like everybody kind of jumps in. And it's such an amazing thing. So whether they realize it or not, they're proclaiming this really true thing as they cry out, Hosanna, Blessed is, is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And it's like, how do all these people cry out the same thing? Well, it's probably an adaptation or something really close to Psalm 118, 25 through 26, which reads, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. 
See, that psalm, Psalm 118, is something that Jews would know. It's when they start crying out, save us, oh, save us, oh, Lord. The word Hosanna is a transliteration. It's a Hebrew transliteration, which just means this. It's, it was a Hebrew way to say, save us. Save us, oh, God. Save us from our sins. Bring us our salvation. Save us, save us. And they're crying that out to the one. If you can remember way back to our Christmas series, we learned what does Jesus' name mean? It means the one who saves. His literal name is Savior. They're crying out to this Savior who's fulfilling this prophecy in the book of Zechariah, riding on this colt, this donkey, this foal of a donkey that's never been ridden before, and he's entering into the city, and they're worshiping him, whether they realize what they're really doing or not. Save us, save us, and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that's what they're doing. And there's these illusions that are happening. And, and whether they would realize it or not, th- there are two other kings, in the, one in the book of 1 Kings, one in 2 Kings. But when Solomon is, is made king of Israel, David has him go out and ride his mule so that he would come into the city of Jerusalem and people start paying Solomon homage because David is saying, this is the new king. I'm making this son king of Israel. And they're seeing that happen. And then Jehu, which is another king that needs to be anointed by a prophet in the book of Second Kings, when he becomes king, they literally start taking off their cloaks and putting it before him. And he starts walking on their cloaks. They are quite literally rolling out the red carpet, if you will. And that's what's happening. These people are putting out their cloaks. They're putting out leafy branches because they're saying something about this man is so special that we're going to keep him off the ground as he makes his way into the city. They're honoring him and they're worshiping him. In the book of Philippians, we're told, Philippians chapter 2, 10 through 11, that the name of Jesus, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So that is telling us what's going to happen at the end. It talks about before in that passage in Philippians that Jesus is gonna come and and he humbles himself to the point of death so that God might exalt him. And that in that exaltation that only God does, he exalts himself the way that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord, that he's the king. And that's what these people are doing, whether they realize it or not, because we know the crowd is going to change their opinion in just a week. They're going to go yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest to crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. I don't know what these people are thinking, but the reality is, is God is having a sovereign way in this moment. And he's showing, I am the king who's coming to save his people from their sins. They're crying out for salvation and they have no idea that's exactly what they're gonna get. He's gonna provide their salvation for them as he dies on the cross for sin and then raises from the dead to conquer sin and death. And because he does that, because he is worthy, because he's the one who does that, he at the end of days is the one worthy to open the scroll and break its seals and bring in the coming kingdom. He's the one that we worship and adore and will pay honor and tribute to forever. Everyone from every tribe, nation, language, tongue will gather around the throne and declare worthy is our God the lamb who was slain nothing is going to stop God from getting what is due him in the worship and adoration in fact in the book of Luke the Pharisees tell Jesus you have to tell them to shut up they can't be doing this they can't be worshiping you like this and Jesus looks at them and says if they didn't cry out these stones would cry out and worship me because nothing will stop him from getting his worship. 
Now, what in the world does that have to do with Monday morning for you? Why does that matter for you? Because the reality is, as Jesus enters on this Sunday, he is entering, guaranteeing the victory that is coming the following Sunday. Jesus knows what's coming. He didn't just know that there would be a cult tied where it was tied. He has told us three times in the book of Mark, I'm going to be killed. And the last time, he's really, really specific. I'll be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and then they will deliver me to the Gentiles, where the Son of Man will be mocked, spit on, flogged, and killed. But after three days, he will rise again. This matters for us that Jesus gets his glory because it gives us a guarantee of our hope. Again, life is filled with crucifixion. Life is filled with seeming defeat. Life is filled with things where you just think this has got to be totally out of control. This isn't the way it's supposed to be. I'm fretting and I'm worried and I'm anxious. But it's all under control. And in the kind of moments... When a Roman soldier stands over you and drives nails into your hands and feet, we have to remember it's all under control because resurrection is coming. He celebrates the victory on the first Sunday that we see him enter Jerusalem because he knows what happens the following Sunday. What we'll see in the book of Mark is not everybody gets it. They're despairing, they're sad, and they're hopeless. But Jesus knows. He sees the end. And you can always trust in the benevolent king that is in total control. And in that truth, have a great and outstanding confidence. Our last point this morning is this, is we want to consider the sovereign's confidence as we just look at our last verse together. It says, And he entered Jerusalem, went into the temple, and when he looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is an anti-climax. This is like the worst way to tell a story ever, right? You like front load it with all this really cool, exciting like parade stuff, Jesus foretelling the future of where a cult's gonna be. And then at the end, he like walks around a temple like everybody else, takes a look around and then like goes back to his hotel. You know, like that's, that's the story. Like that's, it's an anti-climax. But listen, Mark's actually doing that on purpose because the reality is that this temple should be the place where he's getting worshipped. But he's getting worshipped on the street outside the city. When he enters the city that's supposed to be the place of his throne and his kingdom, he's able just to walk around. Nobody sees what's going on. In John 12, what we read for our scripture reading this morning, it says, so the Pharisees, at the very end of all this, where, where, where Mark puts verse 11, John puts verse 19, and it says, so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. And we're starting to see this tension between the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and Jesus. Mark is creating an awkward tension. If you were there for this, it would be weird. It'd be like having a parade before an OSU football game, but then when you got to the shoe, everyone was silent and didn't care about the game anymore. Like everyone's cheering in Powell, but nobody cares in the heart of the city that a game's getting right. Like that would be super weird. You'd be asking like, what in the world is going on? Commentators would be like, why are, why are no one cheering? This is strange. And that's what Mark is showing. It's weird. He's getting worshipped on the outside of the city, but when he gets to the place where he's supposed to be worshipped, where he is the new temple, where he's supposed to be the presence of God, he's just walking around, taking a look around. 
And all this is sta- setting the stage and setting up what, what Jesus has predicted in Mark 10, 33. He says, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and to the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. See, what John gives us a little more picture into is that there is this tension happening between Jesus and the religious rulers. These religious rulers are not paying attention to him because they're paying attention to their own thing. And what we're going to see next week is that Jesus has a look around the temple. And while he doesn't do anything in this particular passage and goes back to Bethany, next week we see he is not happy. Next week we see Jesus comes back to the temple and he takes care of business. Jesus is like a general surveying the battlefield. He's walking around this temple and he's not just casually looking around, but he's looking around and he's seeing all that is happening in the house of the Lord that ought not to be happening. And next Sunday, we will see that Jesus begins to set that straight. But I don't want to give up that one just yet. He looks around and sees what's happening in the temple. And as he does this, He sees that it's already getting late and he goes out to Bethany with the 12. And I presume he does that to go to sleep. And that is so hard for me to wrap my mind around. Jesus knows what this week will entail in his life. He's fully aware. He's told us three times, once, like really, really specifically, this is what's going to happen to me. And his response is to look around, take the 12 and say, let's go back to Bethany. I don't know about you, but if I've got to do something like die, like I just want to do that. I, if I, there's no way through it, I'm just going to get it done. I'm, I'm anxious. I mean, th- this, this week, I got up out of bed at one point and like paced around in our bathroom. And Brittany came like, what are you doing? And I'm solving the world's problems, right? I just, I don't know. My mind's just racing. I can't turn it off. I can't stop and what's so weird, the, the, the huge contrast between me and Jesus is he can actually solve the world's problems. I can't. And his response is to look around and say, today has been enough. I've set out and I've accomplished everything that needs to be accomplished today. So now I'm going to go and I'm going to go sleep. That is just different. That is unlike me in so many ways. Psalm 127, 1 through 2 tells us, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go to late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. This passage is telling us in Psalm 127, we talk about the, anxious, the bread of anxious toil. We're working and working. We're trying to just make it all happen. And oh, I can't get enough done in a day. Does anyone feel that? You feel like you just can't get enough done in one day? And you work and you work and you work and you work yourself tirelessly and you're exhausted by the end of all of it? Jesus comes and he has more to accomplish in a week than we will ever accomplish. He has accomplished eternity for millions of people at the end of this week. It's incredible what he gets done in this week. And when the end of the day comes, Jesus walks around the temple surveys what needs to be done, takes the 12, goes back to Bethany. I just couldn't do that. Why does he do that? Because that's what sovereign confidence is about. Sovereign confidence knows I'm going to get the job done so I can rest when it's time to rest. He knows that nothing will thwart the plans of God. And because he knows that nothing will thwart his father's plans, and that he's a part of the father's plan, and he's walking according to the father's plan, 
When the day is done, the day is done. He takes the 12 and he goes back. The Bible makes this promise to you in Romans 8, 28 through 29. And this is a promise you can take to the bank. And we know that those who love, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Not some things, not expected things, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Again, we see that language there. He's foreknowledge, his pre-planning. He's going to get this accomplished. What is he accomplishing? That you'll be conformed to the image of his son, made more to look like Jesus, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. That passage guarantees this. God will always work things out for his glory and for your good. Every single time. So when the unexpected comes, when you feel like you just got to get that anxious bread and you just got to work and work and work and you cannot move anymore, God is saying, when the day is done, go to sleep. When the day is done, it is done. You've got to trust me. You've got to have confidence in the sovereign God of the universe. You need to know that he is working all things together for your good and his glory. And that is the best possible circumstance that could ever happen for you. Even in the kind of moments when all hope seems lost. And the God of the universe hangs on a bloody cross. No onlooker gets it. He's supposed to be the Messiah and the King. He's supposed to... Get these Romans out of Jerusalem. And here they are tacking him on a piece of wood, a criminal's death, a cursed death. And Jesus is saying, I have them right where I want them. Nothing is out of my control and everything that I'm gonna do is going to be accomplished and it will be for the good of my people and the glory of my Father. This is God's promise to you in this world. Why is this happening? Why, is, why do we get a triumphal entry when we know how the week ends? The Friday is rough. Because God wants you to know he's in total control, even when things seem like they're out of control. I want to close with this. There was a poem. Uh, it was written by William Coper. I hope I said that right. My wife told me I'm not. It's okay. You can look it up. This poem was written, and this this man, he struggled with a lot of difficulty in his life, but he wrote this poem called God Moves in a Mysterious Way. And I think it's a really helpful poem. I want us to to listen to the truth that that it communicates to us. It says this, God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. The little poem helps us remind us of the truth that in life's difficulty, God is always working for our good. When things aren't going your way, when the Roman soldier stands above you and drives nails into your hands, we hear ringing out, 
over and over and over. Sovereign, sovereign, sovereign. He's in control. And he's a good, gracious, and kind God. He's never going to let anything move in such a way that his plans are not accomplished. And it does not work out ultimately for your good and his glory. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for today. We thank you for the daylight we will get this evening, even though it came at a costly price of sleep. Uh, Lord, we are thankful that we can change the time or what the clock says, but the reality is, is you hold the sun and the moon and stars in place. You've set them in motion and they move according to your will. You've planned every day. Your foreknowledge extends to all of eternity. There's nothing that escapes you. And God, as we wrestle with the reality that you are the sovereign king of the universe, I'm just so thankful that we get to wrestle with the truth knowing that at your very heart, you're so kind and good. You are gentle and lowly. You are merciful and gracious. You long for my good, even if that means it has to happen under your precise and surgical knife. The pain that you bring into my life is for a purpose. There's not an ounce of it ever wasted. That you sculpt us and make us into who you want us to be. And when prophets tell that you're going to ride a donkey's full into Jerusalem 500 years in advance, you're able to send two men, tell them to acquire it, and they will untie it. And when they're asked, what are you doing? They'll say, the Lord has need of it. And they'll be let go. It's uncanny and it's strange. It's shocking. People on their way to celebrate Passover will take off their coat and let a donkey walk on it maybe they've heard the rumors of this one who healed people and fed thousands and walked on water or maybe they're just on their way to Passover and they get caught up in the moment they're there to celebrate the reality that you passed over sin you passed over them when you took the Egyptian firstborn because the blood of the lamb was on their doorpost And the reality is the lamb worthy uh, will be slain. A much better sacrifice is on its way, riding on this donkey's foal. This untamed beast of burden carries the king of kings, submitted and and given over to your rule and reign to accomplish what you set out to accomplish. Help us rest in that. Fill us with a confidence in the sovereign of the universe. A sovereign confidence to know that even when life throws things at us that we would never plan or never do on our own, God, that you're in total control. You're so good to us. Help me trust you. 
Because, Lord, you know I'm crying out often. This was not the plan. But I'm wrong. It is the plan. And it's the best thing that could possibly happen for me, for my church, for these people. Help us walk in obedience to do what's right in God. Help us learn to trust. When the day is done, God, help us rest. This is your name. Amen.